I think you can't pretend like you don't know there's a problem anymore, right? Like I think these platforms as they're in their creation stages, like if you're not thinking about moderation and how you're going to keep people safe on your community so that, you know, more than half of the human race, like feel safe on your platform, like then you're doing something wrong. Like you need to be thinking about these things like from the get-go. Nothing's more important than great customer experiences, but sometimes services get disrupted. Resolve issues faster and spend more time innovating. Automate, collaborate, and improve with adaptive incident management. Learn why millions trust XMatters to keep their digital services running at xmatters.com resolve. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Sarah Chips. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Oh, it's pretty good. We have a guest today you want to introduce? Yeah, I'm excited to say that we're here with Emily Krager, who is an Android developer based in Oakland and also an avid TikToker. Hey, Emily. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Oh, it's great to have you. So tell us a little bit about how you got into software development. Was that something you have always done? What's, what's your path to that world like? Sure. So yeah, I actually have a pretty non-traditional background. I went to school for neuroscience, which is unrelated to (laughs) software in almost every way. But after school kind of was looking for what I wanted my, you know, career to look like and kind of fell into software after visiting a friend in San Francisco and really seeing the culture and office spaces out here (laughs) and decided (laughs) that, you know, had to make a change. So Ended up going back to school and getting a master's in computer science. And yeah, I've been here ever since and I love it. That's so neat. I saw that in the responses to your TikTok. You mentioned that everyone in your family is a doctor. Is that, is that you have lots of doctors in your family? Yeah. So both of my parents and most of my friends, actually, because, you know, when you study neuroscience, most people end up going to med school. So yeah, basically like I'm surrounded by doctors all the time. <laughs> were they initially kind of bummed by the software thing? Were they like, really? Um, I think they were confused. <laughs> you know, I did a ton of time in hospitals and, you know, working in clinical research and I think it's super admirable. It just really was not for me. <laughs> yeah. And I was kind of looking for, I was really excited to find something else that I was excited about, I think. So before we jump into your TikTok, I just want to ask, I have this argument with Paul a lot. Isn't the brain, though, just a computer? There's some electrical (laughs) signals. Elon Musk has got Neuralink. We're moving towards the brain-computer interface. I mean, maybe neuroscience in five or 10 years will be very applicable to software engineering. I don't know. I just want to stick that out there. Yeah. A lot of people have actually said this. They're like, oh, well, you could go, you know, into... Neuralink and that kind of, and I was like, no, 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 I actually, I'm ready to move away from, <laughs> right. from that, you know? So. so your sort of, yeah, family history and your time working in the medical area and then going into software led you to this wonderful TikTok, which Sarah had shared with me about what it would be like if doctors were interviewed like software developers. I thought the joke was very funny and I was comparing it to my previous life, but maybe Tell us, what was the inspiration? Did something specific happen, a job interview or a friend's interview? Or what was like the, what made you decide to do this this routine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was just sitting at home last week and just had like strike of creative inspiration, I guess. And I mean, I think people criticize tech interviews quite often and I've had friends going through it in the 
you know, during stay at home and it's been like a interesting experience doing it all remotely. And so I've had, I think just a lot of people changing jobs recently in my life and complaining about the interview process. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just a classic criticism of the industry. And for me, like we were talking about, like a doctor is just the default job in my head because, <laughs> you know, my entire family doctors. So right. yeah, I just thought about it and decided that that was going to be the the skit. <laughs> but really yeah. I didn't do much planning behind it. Like I didn't really think it out much. And <laughs> Are you a TikTok fan? Were you taking off of another, is this a, a meme that other people do like, or is this a fresh thing? Like I know a lot of time on TikTok, somebody comes up with a good joke and then everybody does like their version of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like remix type things. No, I really just, yeah, I think for like the, the skit versions, you kind of just do your own thing and it wasn't like riffing off of something else. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought about it and was like, yeah, I'll do this skit. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm exploring that medium. And I, I really think video is a fun medium and you, you know, get to share with so many different people on TikTok versus like on Twitter where it's, you know, more text-based. And I have actually like five younger siblings and a couple of them are still in like middle school, high school age. And I, I find it like a really fun way to connect with them. They might not like that I'm trying to connect with them on TikTok. Um, I live on TikTok. I love TikTok. Were they thrilled when their older sister went viral or was that super embarrassing? When that uh, yeah, it was probably more embarrassing for them. And, you know, I was texting them questions like, how do I, you know, edit videos so it looks better? And my like 15 year old sister is like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Sarah, when I, you and I talked about this last week, you said that this really hit home for you. Certainly, I think it's interesting, like as a former journalist or something, when people would be like, what do you do outside of work? I'd say, I have a family, I do jujitsu, yeah. I'm into flying drones. It wasn't like, well, most of the time I do investigative journalism in my spare time and I, <laughs> I contribute to nonprofit, you know, Sunlight Foundation. Like nobody expects you to say that, you know, like you might say, oh, I work on my novel or something like that, you know, like I do writing or something. But I guess the gag here is that in the world of software, you're expected in your spare time to be a hobbyist coder, open source contributor, you know, like just this is what you wake up wanting to do every day. Can we talk a little bit about like maybe maybe where that culture comes from and some of the sort of unhealthy aspects of it? I don't know. I, so this could be a lot of things. What I've observed is that people tend to um, want you to have contributed to open source, but not want to pay you to do it, right? Like if you have a job interview, <laughs> they'll be like, how much open source have you done? And then you can say, okay, how much of my job am I allowed to use to like, how much of my time am I allowed to use to contribute to open source? So like, oh, no, that's not something that we do. <laughs> so it's kind right. of like a catch 22 of like, we want you to have done open source. And part of the reason for that, I think, too, is um, because coding interviews are very hard. We've talked about this a lot, like the Jeopardy style interviews. It doesn't really work for lots of people. And so one mm -hmm. way to see how people what type of coding people do or some of their experience to look at their open source work because the work they've done at companies are proprietary. But if you don't have all right. that spare time and desire to focus on those things, um, you don't really have that open portfolio. So that's another part of it that's pretty tough. So mm. um, I think one thing I really like is there's a lot of companies now that will that both hire people to work on open source full time, right? Like I know LinkedIn, I have a friend that works at LinkedIn on the Ember.js project and they have folks that they've hired just to work on Ember.js. So their full-time job is to contribute to open source, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of companies doing things like that, but that's relatively new for like the past five years or so. Before that, it was like, mm -hmm. we want you to be Linus who's like, 
constantly emailing at 3 a.m. but has nothing else going on. <laughs> Emily, has that been your experience as well? Uh, yeah. So I actually am one of those people who's paid to work full time. Oh, that's so, so great. Yeah. I think it's definitely a weird expectation that, you know, you need to be spending all of your free time continuing to basically do your job or do your job for free elsewhere. <laughs> I just think there's so much more to like the world than sitting in front of your computer for the entire day and night and until three in the morning. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think a healthier balance is good for everyone. And there's so much burnout in our industry too, that I can't even imagine like expecting everyone to constantly be working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for you, that's especially true, right? Because it's like open source is what is your job. So like normally there's like, oh, well, I do the the, the company stuff, you know, the private stuff, but then I do the, the benevolent thing, the open source thing. But it's like, well, if open source is your job, then during your free time, you're going to work on your startup, you know, like just take well, a Well, I think, like, yeah, that is the expectation, <laughs> right? Like they, everyone wants to be, you know, hustling, especially like around, you know, Silicon Valley, right? Like right. hustling and making the next startup and working on your side project. And, you know, I think right. it's kind of unreasonable expectation. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess that tweet really hit home, obviously, with a lot of people, you know, the best jokes have a grain of truth behind them, right? Like it wasn't absurdist in any way. What was the initial response like and how big did it get on TikTok? Um, yeah. So I guess the initial reaction, I kind of just posted it on my like TikTok and Twitter, which, you know, my TikTok doesn't have that many followers, but like, yeah, I didn't really expect much, you know, a couple of my friends were liking it. I was like, yeah, it's kind of, I thought it was funny. And then I wake up in the morning and I get messages from, you know, my acquaintances, like not even my like close friends who are like, Hey, is this you? Like, I think this is like, you on the front page of Reddit. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was people who, you know, don't even understand the joke because they're not, you know, working in tech. Like my right. random second cousin in Pennsylvania was like sending me on Instagram, which is the only like contact form we have to each other. Right. right. Um, and he's like, is this you? And I was like, yep, that's me. So you made it to the front of our all, like the front front, not just oh, the yeah. front of like a subreddit. Yeah, yeah. yeah Number yeah. one, actually. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. You were the lead story on the internet's newspaper. But I didn't post it there. So it was kind of like this jarring, like, oh no. That's jarring. (laughs) Yeah. When you don't do it too, that's a lot. Yeah. So I didn't have control. Like I wasn't getting the updates. I didn't know how long it had been up and, you know, it was worrisome, you know, for sure. So I opened it and really most of the comments were positive, right? Like I would say like 80% were just like, yeah, this is a funny joke. And then, you know, 10% are trying to like dissect the joke to the point where, you know, it's like, okay, do you understand what jokes are? Right? Like, you, you don't need to, you don't need to dissect every point of the skit that I made in like two minutes. Right? right. But a lot of people were offended that I used doctors as the analogy, which, you know, Why? Uh, they were just like, you know, doctors work so hard, you know, they work a lot of time and they're off time too. And I was like, yes, I understand. It was never really supposed to be about doctors. It was just supposed to be a, you know, Funny analogy, use pizza mm-hmm. delivery men or garbage men if you yeah, want. Yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter, you know. But yeah, you know, then you start to see negative comments beyond that roll in. And I think that's where, like, you know, it gets problematic. And that's when I decided to try to, you know, reach out to the mods of the subreddit, kind of like an appeal to them that mm. was like, you're not doing your job, basically, right? Yeah, was it our um, programming? You were on our programming? Is that what it was? Uh, it was programmer humor. Programmer humor, So. Okay. Basically, you know, you get to see a bunch of fun, just pretty sexist, objectifying comments on something that was just supposed to be like a joke content about programming. 
Yeah, you're just um, hanging. You're and just so making I, jokes, and people are just yeah, just yeah, hanging out, just you. vibing. <laughs> and so, you know, I start to get notifications that people are trying to log into like my accounts, and you know, I think this is just the dark side of going viral for anyone, but especially a woman in tech. And it's just troublesome that it happens, you know, in our communities, like in our subreddits. And mm. I think when you end up being on our all, like you don't know where all these people are coming from, but you know, you have to assume that some of them are working in the industry and seeing this and decide that's like an appropriate thing to comment. So how did that right. feel? So like, you're like having a day, you're like, wow, look at this content taking off. And then all of a sudden you're seeing stuff that is very personal. What was that like? Yeah, I think, you know, the excitement fades quickly <laughs> of being viral when you're like, oh, shoot, that realizes, like, I realize that I have to be, you know, in front of all these people. Honestly, like, it doesn't impact me as much, you know, when I see someone say like, oh, you know, this girl's ugly. I'm like, okay, like, I, you know, I'm a 26 year old woman. I'm very like secure in myself. Like, that's not going to like impact me. But it's when it starts to like go beyond that and get like a bit scary and, you know, honestly, just like constantly objectifying comments just like gets really old really fast too. Like, you're just like, mm. okay, like, can I just be a person, like a professional in this industry? You know, obviously like I asked that as I'm making TikTok jokes, but yeah. Is there yeah, a comment yeah. that like takes up the most space in your head or is it just, there's just like a lot of them? Yeah. There were a few that, you know, got pretty violent, you know, talking about, you know, she must have, you know, slept with everyone to get this job and, you know, you know, beyond that, like, I don't think it's appropriate for, for to talk about on a podcast, but yeah, like just, you know, pretty violent stuff, uh, like sexual imagery. And I've dealt with this before. Like it's gotten worse to the point, you know, where it's been threads about me on 4chan and like they discovered quote unquote that I was Jewish by going through like my entire Twitter feed to find one Jewish holiday I'd went to and disgusting, like anti-Semitic content. And right. I mean, the punchline is I'm, I'm not even Jewish, but it doesn't really matter. Right. Like I, yeah. it's still disgusting. And so like, I think the dark side of the internet can be like very dark and the consequence of being a woman who's, you know, fairly out there and posting content is you're going to like deal with this quite often. So this is like the second time in probably six weeks that this has happened. And what was the other incident? Yeah. So, you know, I posted kind of a, a joke tweet about like my work in open source and you know a couple people who had been following the project decided that they didn't like how the project direction was going and that I was just you know a fun scapegoat so you know they took my tweets they put them all over the 4chan and 8chan of the internet and threads roasting me about I mean roasting sounds you know nicer than it was <laughs> so yeah I've like dealt with this recently they actually like posed as journalists, tried to like call my work to get me fired, et cetera. Oh my so God. for a while yes. I had locked down my accounts for like, you know, two or three weeks, but I just, I don't think that that's like, you know, it's not fair, you know, that women should have to do that. So, you know, after yeah. the, the initial fire had kind of died down, I opened my accounts back up and just, you know, took out some identifying information, just trying to be like more careful about the things that I post, you know, trying to keep it not personal. And it sucks that, you know, you have to like think through all these things, you know, as you're just trying to like, literally just like make jokes on the internet. right? Yeah. Um, what's yeah. that like, like going to work the next day? Is it hard to focus on your work? Cause you're like kind of thinking about, I imagine you're sitting there thinking about like, okay, is this account safe? Is this account safe? What's going to happen next? You know, like they've called, like they've called my work. They've, you know, like what, yeah. what do I have yeah, we had what surprises next? Oh, yeah. Like, don't worry. When I also logged on to, you know, GitHub the next day, there was some fun, like, very violent PR that someone had opened in our open source Ugh. repo. 
you know, so yeah. it just like, it doesn't end, right? Like right. when you're the target of this kind of right. targeted hate or harassment or whatever you want to call it, I think there's quite a difference between hate and harassment, yeah. but you know, like it just, it bleeds into all aspects of your like online life. Right. And they're not going to stop. So until they get bored. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure this is a double standard, but I wonder, have either of you ever had a conversation, you know, with somebody like a, a man who posts a viral our programmer tweet, I would assume doesn't get the same kind of thing. Like maybe some people come out of the woodwork, like you were saying to say like, this joke's dumb or I don't get this joke, but like it doesn't devolve into personal attacks or, you know, it seems to me like this is unfortunately areas like 4chan and 8chan we know, and then Reddit, which has some threads that are kind of, you know, at that same level where people feel like they are anonymous and they want to take out their, their worst impulses. And when you rise to, you know, the front page, suddenly you you become the target for the day right yeah. yeah and i think a lot of i think a lot of men don't understand the difference because they're like oh well i've posted photos of myself on reddit and you know i've gotten terrible responses saying that i'm like you know out of shape or ugly and they didn't like my joke or they didn't like my content and i it just find it baffling that you know i think like no one likes to receive hate on the internet and of course you know i think it's terrible that the internet is so full of hate and towards everybody. But again, like I think there's a very stark difference between someone calling you, you know, out of shape or ugly versus someone like stalking you down on all of your internet accounts, trying to find your personal information, like bleeding into your work. And then like, you know, the constant objectifying when like you're just trying to like be a professional online, right? Like I think there is a stark difference and it's clearly like targeted at women. Mm. I have, you know, friends who work in, you know, DevRel or they're dead at dev advocates, you know, where their job is to post content. And I just, I feel for them so hard because, you know, one of my friends had to literally like go through the bureaucratic process of her, you know, massive company to even be able to take control of the comments on her own videos, because they had never thought about, you know, what happens when there's abusive comments on her, like, you know, tutorial videos, like they just never thought about it until she showed up and, you know, suddenly her comments are being flooded with terrible content and none of her, you know, male coworkers ever had to deal with that. So, so Reddit did eventually respond to you. Did you feel like they, they at least made some effort or were able to, you know, say to you things that you felt like they understood the situation? Maybe they didn't respond to it quickly enough or they, they could improve in the future, but what was their eventual response? Yeah. So the sub, the subreddit mods replied after, you know, like 24 hours. And, you know, I was a bit irked that while this was going on and the comments were still flooding in, like there was just really no response. Like they weren't deleting things. Myself and some of my friends had been like reporting all of the worst ones and they kind of just like still were there a day later, but they were very apologetic um, when they finally did reply and say, you know, this was totally our bad and we're going to make it a clear rule that you can't, you know, comment sexualized, aggressive comments. And we're going to try to get more mods so we can deal with this faster. And so I really do feel like that was the best response that they could have given me. And I do appreciate the response. I just, you know, I wish they'd done it a little faster. And then I have to kind of question, you know, I guarantee you this is not the first time this has happened Mm -hmm. and it's not going to be the last time it happens. So I really just hope that they take it to heart and like realize that this, you know, is a problem that exists on their subreddit, which has over a million subscribers. Like that's a lot of people. Wow, to be. that's a lot. I didn't know uh, programming humor was so big. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either. I'm not really on Reddit very much, so yeah. It's 50 percent Stack Overflow joke, Sarah. You, you don't spend time there. That's where I get <laughs> I mean, all I my. Do. That's where I get all my material. <laughs> Sarah, it's an opportunity for you. You can start making some content there. <laughs> I have a question, which is like, what is activity like this like on TikTok? TikTok 
you know, is unique in that it came out of China. It seems to have like a very playful vibe, like unlike other places that have devolved into a lot of anger and politics right now, it's still about sharing dance moves and making jokes and skateboarding with some cranberry juice while you listen to Fleetwood Mac. But on TikTok, yeah, are there comments? Are they moderated? Are people, is the tone just generally different? Because like a lot, like when you look at communities, often if you establish the culture from the beginning, that kind of, you know, builds on itself. So, you know, we know 8chan and 4chan built terrible cultures. Reddit has a mix. What's the, what's the culture like on TikTok? Do you get feedback there? And what's it like? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to say, you know, it's just more fun and less hate. But to be honest, like I've gotten, you know, as much negative comments there as I have on, mm-hmm. you know, Reddit or whatever. I think it really just depends on. So TikTok, interestingly, like doesn't have, you know, specific subs that you like subscribe to right but the algorithm knows who you are (laughs) so the algorithm is putting you into you know programming tiktok or you know there's like gay tiktok or there's whatever and they just kind of put you in these buckets and i think it really depends on which of these buckets they get put into for the types of comments that you get and unfortunately Mm. on programming tiktok i think it is quite negative and i don't i don't know why our industry has to be this way but yeah so i think it's pretty similar but the difference to me is that when you post on tiktok like you own your content and you can you know delete comments that you get so different than twitter as well so you can really just be like this is a super aggressive reply and i can delete it myself like it's not i don't even have like to go blocking it you're just like this is yeah, this so i can exist anymore oh, i can great. report it if it's like you know terrible but usually oh, i just imagine if twitter was like that i know it'd be amazing right well now you can have it so people can't reply but i, I also think that limits conversation and i've met so many like strangers on twitter that i really appreciate being able right. to meet right yeah, that's kind of cool. It's like having a, your own blog back in the day where you could be like, this comment isn't going to get approved and this one is. And like, you know, you, yeah, you might want to leave a little space for somebody to give a critique, but not something that's way out of bounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can transition just a little bit to talking about what it's like, you know, working on, on the projects that you work on. What are you doing day to day? What's interesting about it? You know, what are you excited for over the next year or two in the world of, of open source and web browsers? Uh, yeah, I work on uh, Firefox for Android, which is open source web browser. And we did a complete rewrite in the last like two years. So it's been a time. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited just to continue to work on it and make it better. And I don't know if there's like a specific thing about the web I'm super excited for. I think I am more interested in like the policy work that's been going on and trying to think about how these like anonymous communities can, you know, a little bit be held accountable or like you know, not anonymous communities be held responsible for uh, the kind of content that's there. But we have really strong policy team and a lot of smart people are working on these types of policy concerns. So I think that's what mm-hmm. I'm most interested in right now, actually, and excited for. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting what, if and when some of these big social networks start to follow through with, for example, banning all political advertising. Like that's going to be a huge change from the last, you know, six to six to eight years and what we've seen sort of build build to a head. So it does seem like a lot of stuff is happening. And then another thing that I notice is, you know, big companies like Apple making certain moves uh, around privacy that in some ways, you know, block off a lot of what Facebook and Google do. And so I definitely think that there is uh, a lot of turbulence in that world and a lot of jockeying for position to see, you know, what people will accept or not accept when it comes to privacy or moderation, I think is the right, is the right word for it. Maybe. Yeah. I think we've also seen a lot of, you know, new social networks pop up over the, you know, last year, whether it's, you know, TikTok becoming more popular or 
I think there was like Clubhouse or whatever, right? Like all these new social networks that people are trying to get people to join. And I think at this point, one more thing I'll say about like harassment and abuse is just, I think you can't pretend like you don't know there's a problem anymore, right? Like I think these platforms Mm -hmm. as they're in their creation stages, like if you're not thinking about moderation and how you're going to keep people safe on your community so that, you know, more than half of the human race, like feel safe on your platform, like then you're doing something wrong. Like you need to be thinking about these things like from the get go. I think one thing that has been really interesting talking to the people that were, that built the social networks that drive us every day, like the big ones, like Twitter, Facebook, all those things is they were built by one kind of person, right? And that type of person isn't used to walking down the street and having people yell things at them, right? Or Mm -hmm. like, isn't used to like, having in the middle of their day, someone just shock them with a comment about that is something that has nothing to do with either their professional life or their work. And I think because those people don't experience those things when they were designing these platforms, they didn't even think about something like that happening. I talk to those folks often and they they always say like, we're just so surprised. We just never even thought like this mm. would be used as a weapon. And I asked them like, well, okay, how many people were you working with that maybe like look differently from you or like, you know, might've had those experiences. And they're always like, you know, we really didn't have anyone. And so I just, I always think, Whenever we talk about these things, because it's really hard to, as we can see all these platforms trying to build these things in later, when you don't think about this during the design process, building in later, it's just like not intuitive. The system isn't built that way. And it's just, you're just trying to shoehorn functionality into something that is so firmly established mm-hmm. that it ends up just being a cleanup. No it one never has works. solved this. Yeah. <laughs> no one has fixed this. No, There's no platform out there that you can say. Right. This is a very huge platform. Millions of people use it and they've really gotten that part figured out. I don't think yeah, I know. Has. I just think we can do so much better. Like, I think everyone has a responsibility to kind of think of the worst case scenario when they're building technology, right? Or even like not the worst case, but the middle worst case, right? Like how could someone be, you know, targeted on this platform or harassed on this platform? And, you know, even recently in my own life, you know, I've someone was pitching an idea recently that I was just happening to be around for. And it was like, oh, I'm creating this really cool tool on the internet to help people create anonymous profiles and really link to like, quote, a real email address that they can, you know, have a fake Facebook profile that's totally for their like niche interests that they don't want their, you know, family to know about or something, um, you know, for safety and privacy reasons. And my immediate thought was, that sounds terrible. I was like, I don't want it to be easier for people to make, you know, fake Facebook accounts or fake whatever. So everyone's just going to be using that to. Yeah. yeah, But as someone, you know, and the example they used was pretty silly too. It was like, Oh, if if you're like really into anime and you don't want like your close friends to know. And I was like, I like, (laughs) I I hear you, but the downside is like so much greater than the upside of you. Like your friends not finding out that you're into anime, you know, like it was just, I don't know. I think you really just have to, all of us, you know, have to be vocal when we hear these types of ideas to kind of question like, okay, but what about, you know, the worst case scenario of that, right? So it's a real ethical thing as a programmer. There's so much that I feel like this industry, it's so bright eyed and excited about the future. And there are just these gaping holes. Uh, You know, you have a master's in computer science. Do you feel like any of those things were touched on in your studies? No, I mean, I think the I think the ethics of computer science is like a fairly new field. And, you know, I think a lot of 
you know, universities are starting to offer it as part of their computer science curriculum as just maybe an optional course, or if it's not optional, they probably talk about like political hacking, right? Like, I think they really, it's a very limited scope. I don't know how much they're discussing in those courses yet, but I mean, I think people are really working on it and pushing for more education, but you know, I don't think that solves the problem of the people who are currently sitting in the room where these decisions are being made. I don't think those people are thinking about these things, right? So, you know, I hope in the future that the people who are coming up into tech are going to, you know, change the world for the better and really be working on ethical technology. <laughs> yeah, there's a tweet this weekend I saw or a discussion this weekend, I think probably on Twitter, about, you know, how software engineers should have a review board similar to the medical review board. Well, I'd be interested to hear what you thought about something like that. A review board isn't like you can get your, you know, license revoked or something. Right. Yeah, that was my reaction too. There's no license. <laughs> yeah, there's no license, which is, I think, the beautiful thing and the disturbing thing about our industry, right? There's no regulation, which I think is right. cool. You know, anyone can build something and, you know, it's very scrappy, right? Like you could just teach yourself. Yeah. And I think everyone likes to build product if they're, you know, a software engineer, right? Like, why else do we do this? Like, I think building product is the fun part, right? Yeah, I guess if there was some sort of licensure, then maybe it would make more sense. Um, bringing the medical analogy full circle, right? <laughs> yeah, we need to come up with what is the Hippocratic Oath for uh, software developers, right? Move fast and break things. That's uh... <laughs> No, I don't think that's a good one. Let's rethink it. Let's, let's go back to the drawing board. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's just the first thing that popped into my head. Sorry about that. So I was listening to a podcast. It's called Co-Recursive. So it's like a software podcast. And I was listening to it. And they had a interview with a guy named Matt Godbolt. Have you ever heard of this? And like to Godbolt something is now apparently yeah. a verb. Anyway, he's a British guy. And he got started on computers in the 80s. And he told this really interesting story. You could go to the local newsstand. And sometimes you could get like a diskette or something like that. And you could take it home and load up a game. But if you didn't, if you couldn't afford that, or if the game was too big to fit on a single diskette, what they would do is they would print out the source code in assembly in the back and you would buy the magazine, take it home. And then you would, you would input the source code yourself, like type it all in by hand. And then you could play the game. Have you ever heard of that? That, that sounds yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is an older concept, right? It was like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. You couldn't do that now. It would be the worst game. But also <laughs> back then it was the worst game, but it was the best technology that we had. Yeah, I heard a rumor yeah. that Roller Coaster Tycoon was written all in assembly, which was not a Fascinating. super a super old game, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the idea that it was once like relatively small enough and at this low level where like it was like instead of downloading it, you regurgitated it. You know, I thought that was kind of a cool idea to take it from the analog piece of paper and put it yourself. And of course he said, yes, every time, you know, he would have mixed, he missed six characters and he'd have to painstakingly go through the whole thing to get it to work again. But now he can read and write assembly fluently. So there's that. That's great. All right, everybody. It's that time of the week again. The lifeboat of the week goes to Quant Daddy. He answered the question, or she answered the question, highlight JavaScript inside HTML in an Atom editor. So I'm new to Atom, and I noticed that when I use script in HTML, it won't highlight anything. I'd like to know if this is normal, and if it is, how to make Atom highlight JavaScripts. And the answer is, go to settings core tab and unchecked use tree sitter parsers option. Should work without restarting Atom. Thanks, Quant Daddy. Look at that. There you go. 
Save to restart. <laughs> Save to restart. Exactly. All right. Well, again, Emily, thanks so much for coming on and for sharing your story. Don't give up. Keep making people laugh on TikTok. Keep demanding <laughs> good moderation. I'm Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. I'm Sarah Chips. I'm the director of community here at Stack Overflow, and you can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub. And I'm Emily Kager, and you can find me on Twitter at Emily Kager. 